Hi, I'm David Freudberg, the host of Humankind. People sometimes ask about the big picture of our work. Why do we present these programs? The answer is we're trying to cultivate a more cohesive sense of community. And our vision of community is based on personal ideals and values, such as compassion, generosity, equality, and civility. We aim to serve the large and growing audience of people who seek a positive alternative to media negativity and exploitation. And we strive to shed light on solutions, not just problems. If you resonate with this vision, you can support us at humanmedia.org and click How You Can Help at the top of our homepage. Thank you. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund. Additional funding for this series has been provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Institutes of Health, the Annie E. Casey Foundation, and the Park Foundation. I was just absolutely swept away. I thought, oh my gosh, if people only knew that that hunger is needless, hunger is human-made, that we would all you know, do something. Francis Moore LePay, whose diet for a small planet informed a generation about hunger and health. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. After publication of her best-selling book, Diet for a Small Planet, Frances Morlapay is still committed to helping us understand hidden connections between the foods we choose to eat, the earth on which they're grown, and the fact that today more than 800 million people go hungry in our world. In recent years, she has watched the globalization of fast food, the spread of chemical agriculture, and the introduction of genetically modified foods, all trends she finds worrisome. Which is why Frances Moore LaPay teamed up with her daughter Anna LaPay in search of positive trends, new ways for food to be healthy, eco-friendly, and generously available. We traveled on five continents for seven months. Being shoulder to shoulder with people who are saying, wait a minute, no, you know, we human beings are much more complex than these selfish little accumulators, and that we can create communities that are, that do mean that everyone can eat and that uh, we are not polluting the earth. And just to rub elbows with them, I, I felt a level of confidence that I've never experienced before. The LaPays captured the stories of people in many countries, an odyssey that spanned the foothills of the Himalaya Mountains, the lush farms of France, and the poor villages of Kenya. They wanted to document communities where the availability of food was treated as a humanitarian necessity and not just a corporate commodity. The journey is recorded in their book entitled Hope's Edge. We went to the fourth largest city in Brazil, Belo Horizonte, where we met a woman there, Adriana Ranha, who is a coordinator of programs that began in 1993, 
when this city declared food a right of citizenship. They said, basically, if you're too poor to buy food in the marketplace, you're still a citizen. You're still a citizen. That means we, the city government, are still accountable to you. And what, is, what are our responsibilities? We have to make sure that you have access to healthy food. And that approach then brought together church groups and unions and community organizations, and they did the most ingenious, most obvious things, like using small plat- plots of city-owned land to allow um, local organic farmers to, to sell their, their food if they would keep it within the price range of the poor inner-city people. They posted the cheapest places where you can buy the 45 basic food commodities so that there couldn't be price gouging of poor people as there is in this country. Uh, They created school gardens throughout the city. They took the 13 cents for school lunches for each child in their city, and they, instead of buying corporate processed foods, they bought local organic food. They hooked up hospitals and other institutions with local farmers. Um, They they started seeing what, what had been thrown out as waste, Eggshells and manioc leaves, very nutritious. They purified and ground them into an additive for flour that is then used with school children, and they already see the nutritional benefits. So we um, were very excited to be in Belo Horizonte and to meet with Adriana Aranha. And this is a young woman who, at the end of our stay there, uh, I said to her, I said, Adriana, do you know how out of step you are with the rest of the world because you're saying that actually that the city government can work with the economic forces and with the citizens and and actually play a constructive role. And she went on and on and on, and I couldn't understand a word. But she started to tear up. And I had our, our inter, uh, interpreter interrupt her. At that point, I was so curious, and I said, what made her cry? And what brought tears to her eyes when she said to me, answering my first question, you know, she said, yes, I knew how out of step we were. I knew how much hunger there was in the world. What I did not understand is how easy it is to end it. And I will never forget that moment because I thought that what Adriana was saying to us is that it is easy to end hunger if we can break free of these rigid ideas we have about ourselves and our place in community and realize that it's just a matter of using our common sense, creating with the abundant resources that we have, and having a higher estimation of ourselves than simply these selfish little materialists. Francis Moore LaPay became fascinated with the problem of world hunger as a graduate student in social work at the University of California in Berkeley. Even though a popular view held that the Earth's exploding population would inevitably lead to mass starvation, Francis LaPay was unconvinced. I was a young person. I was 26 years old at the time, trying to figure the world out. I I think that uh, those of us who were coming to adulthood at that time were very aware that we were living in a world that where things were quite frightening. We were told that there was not enough food in the world to feed us all. We were told that humanity had simply outstripped the Earth's capacity to feed us. And as a young person, I wanted to know, is that true? Is this really the, the cause of the suffering that is 
obviously all around me. And so I set out in my own, what I call my following my nose research approach, to answer that question and learn that, (laughs) in fact, there was more than enough food in the world to make us all chubby. That was the wake-up call for me. So I thought if we just knew that it's avoidable, that we would mobilize to change. And so that was the beginning that led me to write Diet for a Small Planet, first as a one-page handout that I was going to post around Berkeley, California, which then became a book in 1971, Diet for a Small Planet. And I I think the biggest impact on me uh, was the realization that I was not alone. The response to that book meant that many, many more people were searching for solutions and wanted to be part of a very personal um, solution in the sense that the idea that our personal choices have global impacts I think that was what was so compelling and still is to me and to the readers of my books. Grocery stores like this one are where many of us select from among the staggering variety of foods available. Diet for a Small Planet introduced readers to new ideas about the food choices we make. It wasn't a dieting fad. It was a whole new way of seeing the implications of what we eat for the environment, for the global food supply, and for personal health. I remember pretty vividly that in the starting in the early 1970s, it had become a kind of underground classic, and then eventually it became a above-ground classic. Explain how that happened and, and what you heard from people. Well, it was never, it's never been on a bestseller list. It sold between three and four million copies. But... <laughs> How, how does a book sell millions of copies and not be on the bestseller list? It's interesting. I don't know that I know the answer to that. But in other words, it was never a big splash. It just was word of mouth, word of mouth over all these years. The time that, that it came out, the birth of the ecology movement, and people searching for personal answers, I think that, which is still, of course, true today. So as I understand it, that it's continued to go sort of mother to daughter Father to son, I mean, I, I hear a lot of stories about people saying, oh, my mother gave me your book, or that it was part of our family. And, and um, so it, it's, it's really interesting. I feel like it was born during a time when my generation was searching so ardently. And so it, it, that little book has a special place in people's hearts in a way because it reminds them of an era that they never want to lose when they were asking the biggest questions. So how, how do you think the book that you wrote spoke to that yearning that was uh, so palpable in the late 60s and early 70s? Well, I think two things. One, that it it really does help you understand how, quote-unquote, the system, I mean, how the economic givens take this tremendous abundance that we have in this world and reduce it to scarcity. So that we, you you don't, when when you're sitting there with the steak on your plate, you don't see this invisible waste that 16 pounds of grain and soy have gone in to create that. You don't see the two to 10,000 gallons of water that have been used to create that steak. And so I think part of it was just people thinking, oh, my God, you know, this is insane. And I had no idea this was happening. 
And to help people see how that happens, because of the economic givens that exclude more and more people from having the economic wherewithal to make their demand in the marketplace. So we have this illusion of cheap grain. We have now mountains of cheap grain, even in a country like India, which has more hungry people than any other country in the world, and yet it has surplus grain. And so what do you do with that surplus? Well, if it's cheap enough, it makes economic sense to feed it to livestock. <laughs> As I say, 16 pounds of grain and soy going in to produce one pound of steak in our country. So I think the book just alarmed people who said, I had no idea. And then to say, okay, I can choose a diet that is plant-centered, that doesn't uh, involve this kind of waste and destruction of resources, so that my vote with my body, if you will, or with, and with my dollar and then with what I put into my mouth uh, can have ripple effects. And, and it's also a sensitizer. I think people realize that, well, let me say another piece of that is that I think that one of the pieces that so appeals to me and to my readers is the idea that what is best for our bodies individually is also best for the earth, that convergence of interest, that happy coincidence that a plant-centered diet, a whole foods diet that's locally grown, places the lightest burden on the planet, and it's also what our bodies thrive on. And certainly mine, I, I mean, I I was a compulsive eater until I moved to this diet. And in 30-something years now, I, I never weigh myself. I never have to deny myself anything because my body is aligned with what it needs. So I think it was all of the, that convergence, the convergence of the, the, the idea that what's best for me is best for others, best for the earth, and that uh, the idea that being conscious about what we put into our mouths is like wearing a string around the finger, <laughs> reminding us every day, something we do multiple times a day, of our connection with the earth and with one another and with respecting our own body's health. So I think all those things come together. You can eat a white blue cheese, no onion, no tomato, extra pickle, extra lettuce. Lunchtime on Saturday at a Burger King restaurant in suburban Boston. French fries cook in gurgling oil. Cheese melts onto steaming burgers. And a meaty aroma pervades the scene. What are you having for lunch today? French fries. A Whopper Jr. and I had a chicken sandwich already. <laughs> That's all. How was it? Horrible. I feel like I'm like the acid indigestion is already kicking in. Why do you eat in a place like this if that's the reaction you get? It's fast, it's quick, and I was starving to death, so I'm here. Well, I think it can be bad nutritionally if you overdo it, but uh, uh, once in a while I don't think it's bad at all. What did you have today? I had a Whopper. Big cheeseburger. How was it? It was good. I feel full, and that's good. You focus a lot on the personal choices that we make day to day uh, and on the larger impact of those personal choices. How do you see that? Well, part of it is that I, you know, people said to me, have always said to me, oh, well, you know, you're silly to think that eating less meat is going to save the world. And I said, yes, I would, anybody would be silly to think that that alone is going to save the world. But I, I do believe that every single choice that you and I make that aligns us with our deeper value and a sense of where we want 
our communities and our world to be makes us more convincing to ourselves and therefore more powerful people. So that one is that as we align our choices with our values, we become more powerful. And I also believe that we are all educators, whether we stand in front of a classroom or write or not, that our very being is influencing others. And this was just confirmed, is that there's now new evidence that there are such things as mirror neurons, mirror neurons in our brain, so that when we are observing any activity, that we are also experiencing it on some level neurologically, so that we actually absorb the experience of others unconsciously. And therefore, the more that, that I can put myself um, in line with my values, people observe that. They see that, even if they're not conscious of it. And they start to think, oh, you know, I could do that. I could do that. And so I think that that is the spirit of all of my work. And, and what I see happening now, the idea of a plant-centered diet is no longer freaky. It is now in, embraced by all the, the most um, expert medical authorities saying that a plant-centered diet is really where, where our bodies thrive. I'd like to hear more about how our personal choices can have a large impact. This seems to me really an enormous observation. It places um, a high responsibility on the individual, and it also empowers the individual when we realize that things as simple as our daily dietary right. choices and many other choices that we right. make in the course of daily life can have a huge ripple effect. Are having, are having. And I think that this is the most imp important place to start, is to realize that whether we're making our choices consciously or not, they're having impact, enormous impact that the world that we're creating moment to moment is only a reflection of our individual choices in one sense, that you know, the, the, the uh, degradation of our soil, our water, now that we have a dead zone in Mississippi the size of the state of Massachusetts as a result of agricultural runoff from this overproduction that is chemically based and extractive type of agriculture, or whether we, you know, we look at uh, the health, public health problems today from diet, the heavily meat-centered, processed, highly sugared, fatty diet is now responsible for more deaths than, um, and disease than smoking in our country. So I just want to make, to start my answer by saying that unconscious choices also have impact. It's not just that we start having impact when we take responsibility and consciously choose. The only question for us is whether we have an impact that we want that is good for us and good for others, good for the planet. So very practically, you think of a, of a plant-centered, uh, whole foods, locally grown diet, you think of the implications of that alone um, in terms of saving, um, protecting healthy soil, saving water from pollution, uh, certainly the waste that is involved. When you think of two to 10,000 gallons of water in a water-scarce world uh, that, that, that are used to produce that steak, well, if you're not buying that steak, then you're not putting that kind of demand on the system. And that does uh, send signals back through our economy. But don't, um, don't the crops need to be irrigated? Aren't, isn't there a depletion of water resources in the plant-centered diet? Well, yes, but the point is that, that the meat-centered diet requires so much more uh, grain 
because it's a, basically a grain-fed meat-centered diet, that you're talking about many, 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 many multiples uh, of, um, of water to produce a meat-centered diet than a plant-centered diet. And I guess we keep hearing that water will be, you know, sort of the oil of the future, yes, the, the most prized resource over which there may even be warfare because it's so crucial. Absolutely. And water tables are falling on every continent. The underground water supplies are falling, and there are parts of our country in North Texas and parts of India and other parts of the world where that are becoming un. Uh, usable for agriculture because of depleted groundwater, and um, this is a huge global problem. On her far-reaching travels for the book Hope's Edge, Frances Moore LaPay spent much of her time in the Third World to observe how environmental and food distribution patterns affect the poorest people. She was especially touched by her encounters with the late Wangari Maathai, a scientist and activist in Nairobi, Kenya, who in 2004 became the first African woman to receive the Nobel Peace Prize. Wangari, on Earth Day in 1977, planted seven trees to honor seven environmentalists in Kenya. And from that, she herself is a biologist and began to to be uh, profoundly aware of the impact of, of desertification in Kenya, that something like 10% or so of the original forest now is there, and realized the effect on the entire ecology on, and on Kenya's capacity to feed itself from the destruction of the forests that were holding uh, the uh, moisture in the soil, preventing erosion, and uh, um, that were protecting the, the rivers and, and all of the, the entire uh, ecology of Kenya was affected, was threatened by deforestation. So she went to the foresters and said, wait a minute, we've got to halt this, and the only way to do this is to involve tens of thousands of villagers. And I propose village women become the tree planters all over our country, and we can mobilize them. Well, the foresters would have nothing to do with it, and they said, absolutely Unschooled village women can't plant trees. Well, <laughs> that was 20 million trees ago, all planted by unschooled village women who are now part of a network that Wangari's organization called the Green Belt Movement have spurred in 6,000 tree nurseries around the, their country. And we got to visit uh, these nurseries. We got to talk to these women and to see the incredible power that uh, this act of, of taking control, and, and, and this is this idea of entry points that we bring out in Hope's Edge that I think is, has meant a lot to me, that in each country it was a different entry point. With, in Belo Horizonte it was the right to eat. Well, in, in Kenya it was the tree and the planting of trees because women had been dependent on their husbands for firewood, uh, for trees, and they had to walk incredibly long distances. And so by women being able to plant their own trees... Uh, being able to grow their own firewood, that then gave them a sense of their own capacity, their own agency, and then that had all sorts of ripple effects in terms of questioning export agriculture as the sole basis of their economy and starting to plant a diverse uh, kitchen gardens to have better nutrition. It had all sorts of, of ripple effects. So this power of the Greenbelt movement 
was just so moving to us. And yet we knew that Wangari was threatened and beaten and jailed by the Moy government over decades. In fact, when we got back from Kenya, we had to write a letter of support for her to get her out of prison. Why, why was she because arrested? Because she, she was arrested for protesting continued deforestation. Then she decided at the last minute to run for a, 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 a seat in parliament. She outpolled her nearest opponent 50 to 1. And then soon after that, she was appointed, Wangari Mathai was appointed Deputy Minister for the Environment. Um, so to see, for me personally and for my daughter, to, to be in these villages with these women and to know that Wangari was, had been threatened and jailed, beaten, and yet she kept walking, you know, figuratively kept working, involving more and more women throughout the country, and ultimately now is in a position where the Greenbelt Movement is considered a model for environmental restoration and empowerment, More, most important, people gaining their sense that they can address their problems. Very Mandela-esque, going yes. from prison to parliament. Yes, very Mandela-esque. And how about ordinary Americans? What are some entry points that would be accessible to us? Well, every time we spend anything, we can really vote with our dollars in a whole new way. We can choose, for example, fair trade coffee. There are now fair trade chocolate. We can go to a website such as idealswork.com and check out the um, very easily with the with that website check out what is the environmental and social uh, record of companies that we are considering purchasing from. What I am learning is to a very large extent what we become is a product of what we allow into our lives, and I often say this to young people: the who you choose as friends, who you ultimately choose as your mate. Uh, where you choose to work, that's what you will become. And this is very significant when you think about it, that you, that I, that you can choose to bring into your life information, people. You can show up at a meeting. You can um, change your, your employment in order to become the person that you want to be. As you associate with people who will reinforce that, See if you can find someone who shares your passion for the questions that are most on your heart right now. And I think this buddy system, is there's really something to this. And it might just be one other person, or it might just be seeing if you can have a little monthly group or weekly group. Uh, maybe it's just a couple of people uh, to be exploring something together that will bring more meaning and satisfaction in your life, where you feel that you are understanding a pattern that is causing this tremendous suffering in our world and where your particular excitement could, could rise in, in finding your own entry point. But I just want to underscore that I think that whoever you are listening, that there is someone in your circles who you could probably approach um, to just talk, begin to talk and to uh, really keep you moving forward and believing that, that you do have something to, to give that, uh, that, is, that will enrich your life. Frances Moore LaPay, author with her daughter Anna LaPay of Hope's Edge, The Next Diet for a Small Planet.
You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Steve Colby. Editorial assistance from Thomas Royal. Our program is presented by Human Media in association with The Network Incorporated. Program development and support provided by Shart Media. You can hear more episodes of our series at humankindpodcast.org. That's humankindpodcast.org. This segment with Francis Moore-LaPay is Humankind Program number 77. The executive producer is David Freudberg. Please subscribe to our free weekly podcast. The title is Humankind on Public Radio. You can find it at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, NPR One, and all major podcast services, as well as through our website. Again, the podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you'd like to support our program, please visit humankindpodcast.org. And at the top, click on How You Can Help. Thank you.